You're listening to the Songs of Jesus sermon series at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. This series explores the power of singing the stories of Jesus. We'll see how these songs are rooted in the promises of God, speak to our deepest longings, and equip us to bring all we are to Him. Pastor here at Sojourn Church Carlisle, and it's so good to see everybody here and to have our children voices with us uh, for Family Sunday. Um, We're so thankful to be able to celebrate together. Hey, Joan, I see you. Uh, We are so thankful to the Lord for the opportunity that we have uh, to be able to continue to worship together, especially the Sunday before Christmas. We're so thankful for God bringing us to this time of year once again. Uh, Would you stand with me? We're going to go ahead and read um, the portion of scripture we're going to look at today, which is in Isaiah. We're going to look at verse Isaiah, short verse today. It's the last of the four sermons, uh, servant suffering psalms that that are in the uh, book of Isaiah. But Isaiah 52, looking at verses 13 through 15 is what we'll read together uh, for the hearing of for today. It says this, it says, Listen to the word of the Lord. It says, see, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and exalted up, lifted up and and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance will be so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what they had not been told them and they will understand what they had not heard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You may be seated. For those who may be new to us today, we have a program that you can grab and uh, looks as such, and it has kind of the outline for the sermon as well as uh, the sermon for today, the scripture verse for today. So feel free to walk along there um, if you look, look along there. But I encourage us as we can, as we are able, to open up the Word of God, not just look at a piece of paper or the program, but to have a physical Bible with you as you're able, especially with our children here today. Um, but, but as often as we can, we want to be looking into the Word of God as we study it each and every Sunday. Amen? Amen. So this is a good question I have for all of us today. I think appropriate question is this. What kind of gift giver are you? What kind of gift giver are you? As we approach the holiday season, as we approach Christmas season, this is a good question for all all of us to consider. What kind of gift giver are you? And honestly, I probably shouldn't ask you that question. I should probably ask your spouse. I should probably ask your siblings. I should probably ask your best friend. But just for the sake of time and and, and for for the sake of transparency and authenticity, I want you to think for a minute. What kind of gift giver are you? Now, I have to admit, there are a lot of different type of gift givers out there. We have the, extra, uh, the extravagant gift givers. I like, to, I like to include myself in that one. Um, we use Christmas as an excuse to get as much as we want, and no matter how much we pay to get it. Amen? We, we want to we over, overwhelm our children. We want to overwhelm our spouses with beautiful things because it is a season of giving, Right? Um, then you also have the uh, other type of giver. You have the simple, the needs giver. You have the person who gives the things of necessity and the things of life. Those things could include and probably do include um, socks and underwear. 
Maybe a stick of deodorant. Yes, grandparents, you can, you can laugh at that. That's okay. It's a good. We need those simple needs and those sim- simple things that we need. Sometimes maybe be, some people are minimalist. You want to give the least gift that would cost you, give the best gift that would cost you the least. You want to give the gift that, um, hey, I want to give you something, but because I'm cheap, I'm just going to try to get you something, one thing that's really good. I also include myself in this from time to time, especially on birthdays. Sometimes you have the quid pro quo. You have the something for something. Hey, I'll give you something nice if you'll give me something nice. What kind of gift giver are you? Today, I want to turn our attention to a gift that was given a long, long time ago, over 100 years ago, actually in 1848. And the gift was simply this. It was a, it was a Christmas carol that we're going to look at called O Holy Night. And this Christmas carol, this gift came out of a place of much social unrest, a lot of economic woes, famine, even discontentment um, to describe this season. It came in a a season called the Year of Revolutions, and it was given by a man, as you see behind me, named Placide Capot. And my French is not that great, but that's the best I can do. Uh, Placide Capot is my my daughter. She's taking French. She helped me out with that. Uh, He's a French poet from 1947. And we want to look at the gift that he's given us through this song, O Holy Night, what it meant for us that back then, and what it means for us today. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you. We praise you and thank you, God, that you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. Lord, there's no gift that you give us that's not appropriate for us or will not succeed. We thank you, God, for the gift of life. We thank you, God, that you've given us another day to see and experience our family, our friends, and to have your breath in our lungs. We do say thank you. We don't take it for granted. God, we also want to thank you for the gift of family and friends. Even those surrounded us to, right now, we thank you for our children, those who are surrounded by us um, and those who maybe have gone home to be with the Lord who are no longer with us. We thank you for the children you've given. And we even thank you for the children that um, you are yet to give, um, who are yet to be born, even right now. And lastly, Lord, we thank you for the gift of Christ. Thank you, God, that he is, a, he is the most sufficient and successful gift we can ever have. Because on you, you have stamped the approval of yes and amen. So we do praise you. I do ask that you will be with me, humble my heart, and prepare, uh, humble my heart and our people's, our church's heart to hear what thus says the Lord today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the year was 1848. It was known as the year of revolutions. Some call it the spring of revolutions or the people's spring. And it's called this because 50 countries in Europe at the time revolted and they overthrew their governments. There was no unifying leadership, no singular movement or goal. Each country went in different directions with one another. Different models and different means were being established. The shared belief was simple amongst everybody that this was not working. Economic woes, famine, uh, social unrest, discontentment is perhaps the best words to describe this era. Monarchy wasn't working. Starving people weren't, that wasn't working for, um, for the population. Jobs were not working. This is not working. And the desire underneath uh, this belief was to see people treated better. Equality and fairness the, the desire to create a more equitable society where people are treated be- better, and each country went about achieving this in different ways, 
often messy, bloody, and even short-lived. Into this bleak situation steps Placide Capo. In 1847, a French poet, uh, he was a French poet who, behind his desk, considered the unrest that was around him. He considered the longings of his own heart and the discontentment of his people, and he did what he knew to do best. He wrote a poem. And a musician later found the poem and put it to music, and the song began to cross the world. It first took root and was popularized in the United States through churches in New England. America, despite, despite this comp, uh, constitution, which greatly influenced the Euro revolutions, had its own internal discont, uh, discontent about treating people better. Our own country, from the very inception, from the very beginning, our own country had longings for equality, fairness, and change. Just imagine with me for a moment. Imagine what was going on in the minds of Christians as they sang this one line from this song. Chains shall he break, for the slave is his brother. This is a song, this is a, a lyric, this is a, a, a lyric from O Holy Night that stands out and speaks of the, the hope that Placid Capo and other Christians in this era, era were hopeful to find. Placid, Placid's song was later translated into English and it was called O Holy Night. Now before we go any further, what I want to do is I really want to focus on that one word, holy. What does that mean? To be Holy. Now, if you give me the seminary answer, the Sunday school answer, you'll probably tell me holiness is simply, or holiness or holy is simply be set apart for a sacred use. And that's true. That is absolutely true. But let me take you to another source. Let me, see, let me take you to A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, and listen to the definition that he provides about this aspect of holiness. He says this. He says, God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitively bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The nature of man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he can't even imagine. You see, this song, O Holy Night, was birthed from a, for, from a longing for change. A belief that people needed to be treated better. And in the original French, that, 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 that lyric, chain shall he break for the slave is his brother. What it means in original French is this. Love unites those whom the iron held in chains. You see, Placid believed there was a different way to change than his European countrymen pursued. One, not found through violence against their neighbor, one that would be harder to see, yet far more powerful. He did not see the power to change as a political revolution, but he saw the power of change encapsulated and embodied within the birth of a baby. You see, the scriptures filled his imagination for what could happen because he believed the promises they gave him. Isaiah 52, 13 begins this way. It says, see, my servant will prosper. I love this. I love how it starts off because this is the question. Remember the first question I asked you is what kind of gift giver are you? This is the second question I want you to consider. What's in a gift? 
What's in a gift? And the simple answer is this, is that the gift or a gift always reflects the heart of the giver. When someone gives you a gift, they're not just giving you something for you to have. They're giving you something that's from their heart that is, um, that is manifested through the gift that they give. So regardless if you're the minimalist who only wants to give a little um, during Christmas, no matter if you are the simple necessary giver who gives out uh, socks or deodorant or kind of the fun things of life that people need, no matter if you're the extravagant giver who wants to give your spouse or your children or your grandchildren everything that's on their Christmas list, the gift always reflects the heart of the giver. And one of the things we get to see about God is that in giving us the baby Jesus, he's revealing not just a gift, he's revealing his heart. And he's showing us exactly the, the heart that he has for his people. Now, before we talk about that, remember, God's gift was given despite our rebellion. There's no reason for us to receive this gift. There's no reason for us to earn this gift. This gift was not given because you, you kept Santa, you were good throughout the year, and Santa found you to be uh, acceptable to receive a gift under the Christmas tree. It's actually just the opposite. We were rebellious against God from the very beginning. And this is a good reminder for all of us to know that during the Christmas season, God himself is always the greatest victim within the Bible. We have transgressed. We have turned away. We have forsaken and forgotten the Almighty. And in us rebelling against him, in our rejection of, against him, and in our refusal to love and obey his commands, he's given us a gift. And I don't know about you, but that stirs, that stirs something in my heart to know that God gives us a gift even when I don't deserve it, amen? It's simply called with one word, grace. God has graciously given us, not because we deserve it, not because we earn it, not because you've been good enough, not because you, you have uh, done the right things all the time. He's given us a gift despite our rebellion, our rejection, despite our refusal to love and obey him. He's given us a gift. And guess what? Isaiah 52, 13 says, he, my, my, he says, see, my servant will prosper. Notice what it doesn't say. He doesn't say my servant might prosper. It doesn't say my servant will prosper eventually or someday. God gives a gift that is guaranteed success. He says, listen, my servant will prosper. I don't know about you, but that deserves an amen. The promise here is God's chosen servant, the Messiah, will succeed. He will achieve what he sets out to achieve. And we don't get clarity on what that exactly means until a chapter later. But first comes the promise. He will get what he wants and he will succeed. It's a lot of gifts that you might get on Christmas Day that just won't be successful. <laughs> a lot of things you get that you, as soon as you open up, you're going to say, yep, keep the receipt. I'm taking that back to the checkout line uh, to, get, to get another something. But the gift that God gives, it will not only be given, but it will succeed. Notice we get three striking verbs in the original language here. It says he, he will be raised up, he will be lifted up and high. 
Most English translations render it, he will be highly exalted or he will be high and lifted up or exalted. You see, the promise is the Messiah will achieve all he plans and he will be raised up with God. You see, power to change can only come through the Messiah. But it won't look like what we expect. He will succeed, but it's not going to look like the way you think success should look like, or I think success should look like. It's going to look different. Look with me in verse uh, 14. It says, many were amazed when they saw him. Now, the word amazed here is more about shock and awe or being, um, uh, excuse me, it's more about being shocked and awe and surprised. It doesn't mean that they were impressed or stunned. And check this out. Why will they be amazed? Because verse 14, his face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his presence, one would scarcely know he was a man. So we have these two promises. He will succeed, but he'll do it in a different way. He'll do it in a way that is unfamiliar and maybe even undesirable for for humanity to succeed. Something would happen to the servant that would disfigure him, distort his face. Something so heroic would happen to him that he wouldn't even look like a man anymore. Does that sound like the power of revolution to you? Does a disfigured face distort it beyond recognition? Does, Does that look like power to you? Notice what verse 15 says, and he will sprinkle, another better translation in my opinion, he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence. There's your promise. He will be successful, but he will also be disfigured. He will be successful, but he will be disfigured. I love this aspect of of, of what, what the two truths that Isaiah is holding up. It's kind of this aspect of ambidextrous faith. There are times in your life, brothers and sisters, where you are going to have to believe that God is sovereign and he can do all and that he can, he can, he can, he can lift you out of any circumstance, but you don't want to do that to, to suppress the realities and the pain that you experience within this life. You want to exalt one, the sovereignty of God, to dilute the reality that you're facing each and every day. He's not calling you to that. Obviously, he's not calling you to live in the presence of the the, the realities of the day so much so that you can't see the sovereignty of God. He's not calling you to live in life and life is always going to be like this. It's always going to be hard. It's always going to be difficult. He doesn't call you to experience and, and 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 to know life so much that you suppress the sovereignty of God. What he's calling us to is a both and, what I like to call an ambidextrous faith where you can both simultaneously look at the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and still look at your circumstances and and say, it will get better because he will succeed. God has not given me a, a gift that will not succeed in Christ. In Christ, I find victory. I'm not fighting for victory. I'm actually fighting from victory. It's a mind, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a totally different perspective of thinking of that way. A person who's fighting for victory, it, it's all about you. You have to get it right. You have to get it done. You, 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 you. But a person who's fighting from victory is a person who lives out reality in the identity that Christ has established for you from the very beginning of time. And this is the victory we have in Jesus. 
is although I don't feel like I'm perfect, I am made perfect in him. Although I may not feel healed, I may not feel, um, feel accepted and, and lovely before God, in Christ I'm accepted and lovely in him. I may not have all the money in the world, I may be living paycheck to paycheck, but in Christ I have my fulfillment of monetary possessions because my father has a cattle on a thousand hills and he's waiting for me to open my mouth and let, me know the need, let him know the need so he can satisfy that need for me. It's an ambidextrous faith. It's a both and. Don't allow your realities to suppress the sovereignty of your God. But don't let the sovereignty of God to suppress the reality that you're living in. It's a both and. Not, it's a both and. Not an either or with our God. He says in verse 15, he will stun the nations. He will shock kings. They don't know what to say because it does not look like power and it doesn't look like a revolution. A disfigured man does not look like victory. But Isaiah 52, as I said earlier, is often called the servant song. And Isaiah 53, one chapter over, describes his victory in detail. See the disfigurement of, of, of 52.14. Isaiah 52.14 is a result of violence and brutality. Shockingly, this was not unexpected, even from God himself. Look what Isaiah 53.10 says. It said, it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Suffering, pain, humil humiliation, this was God's revolutionary plan from the beginning. This was how God would address the discontentment and longing to change in the human soul. And it is here, after saying the Messiah would suffer and would be beaten, that we are finally told what success means for the suffering servant. Look with me in Isaiah 53, verse 11. It says this, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his, knowledge shall the right, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Hallelujah and thank you, God. You see, this, God, this gift that God gives, why will it succeed? Why will it be successful? Because this gift that God gives changes everything. It changes everything. Our pain and our suffering can be will be and is being redeemed through Jesus. God makes sense of the pain, y'all. He makes sense of it. You know, I, I love playing video games, especially during these breaks that I have. I'm not going to probably play video games now because uh, my kids, they like to play with me, so I, <coughs> I play what they like to play, which is fine. Um, we're going to probably beat Mega Man X on Super Nintendo, if anybody know about that game, a couple of times over the break. One thing I love about video games, and especially I play it, when I get a chance to play it, is um, sometimes I like to play college football games. I'm not good at Madden, so not, don't ask me to play that, but I can play in college football because um, you can do trick plays and all that stuff, and I can kind of make, make up my own players. I can do that in Madden, but I like doing it in college football. I digress. Um, anyhow, <clears throat> one of the things about playing college football is this. I, I love playing it, but sometimes you have a perfect season. I love taking, like, low teams and making them better, you know, like, I'm not going to say a team, but um, I'll take my alma mater, Central Michigan University. I was going to say Kentucky, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm going to keep friends for, for the holiday season. Um, Central Michigan University, I love taking, like, low teams and bringing them real high. And sometimes, you, you know, you, you won, like, nine or eight games in a season, and you just play a random team, 
and they're just beating you. And you don't, you don't, don't want to take the L because that'll ruin your season. So you know what I do? I'm not, I'll, I'll just be real with y'all. You know what I do? Huh? Yes, I, I hit the reset button. Yes, I hit the reset button. I know, I know, I know, I know. That's cheating, I know. But I don't want to take the L. I just don't want to. I don't want to. I don't feel like I need to. I'm like, well, I'll just try again, you know. And then I'll beat that team like by 50 and feel like, yeah, I'm the man. What, what God has done in Christ is that from the very beginning, as we said, God has been forsaken. He's been forgotten from the very beginning. And instead of hitting the reset button, and, and he could have, as a righteous and holy, he could have hit the reset button and started all over. Instead of doing that, he took the deficit and he provided his son. And his son has made up the deficit, not just in creating an equal platform for us to be, to, to be on the, um, to, to tie the score, but he's actually winning the game from a deficit, 50, 60, 80 points down, however you want to say it. He, he was in the hole and he's brought forth his son whom he has said yes to, to make all the difference. This is the reality of the gospel and this is the reality of what God has provided. You see, God doesn't push the reset button on sin. Pain isn't an instrument, isn't an, pain is not an intrusion into the lives of Christians. It's an essential element in shaping our lives as fellow believers of, of Christ. Pain isn't an intrusion. God said, you know what? I'm going to take what you've chosen. I'm going to take the pain, the suffering, the sin that you've chosen over me, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to hit the reset button. I'm going to send my son to pay in your place for that sin you've chosen so that you can be reconciled back to me. I'm not going to do away, away with the sin because if I do away with the sin, I have to do away with you. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to send one who is holy, who is righteous, who is altogether lovely, the only perfect one sent from God. I'm going to send him to pay for sin he did not do, that he was innocent of, so that you may receive the benefits of his sacrifice. And I don't know about you, but just thinking about that, brings gratitude and thanksgiving to my heart. What shall he accomplish? What shall the servant accomplish? He shall bear our iniquities and account us as being righteous. Why did he suffer? Because we deserve to suffer. Why did he, why did he suffer? So God could, could, so God could attribute his goodness to, so God could attribute his goodness to us. Why did he suffer? Because he loves us and he longs to transform us. This was in the heart of Placide's, uh, Placide's Carol when he wrote these words. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Why, do, why does the weary world rejoice? Because God took matters into his own hands. When that baby was born, those who had eyes to see felt their souls stir. And th this is it. This, this, is what the gospel, this is what the gospel consists of. Our sad days will be over. Our sins will be forgiven. And we will be made righteous through the blood and through the son of Jesus. Let me just put it in, 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 in a summary. We can change because we will be changed. Here's how one author describes this thrill of hope. 
He says this, he says, this, his disfigurement was not a punishment for our sins as some thought, but instead his sufferings are for the sake of purification that produces a profound change in the attitude of those who behold him. We remember his appearing and look to him and the soul felt its worth. All of your rebellion, all of our distortions, your failures to trust God, all of that has been laid on the shoulders of Jesus at the cross. Why do we, song, why do we long for fairness, for people to be treated better? Because of the infinite worth of the human soul made in God's image. This longing is affirmed in the birth of Christ and even more so in the death of Christ. He carried our iniquities to make you righteous, to be united with him, to live wisely now. And the promise was that he will succeed. Beloved, take comfort in this reality because this means you can change because you will be changed. Think with me now on what this reality means, though. Did you see that author's last line? Let's look at it again. He says this at the very last line. He says, purification that produces a profound change in the attitude of those who behold him. Notice he, he doesn't say a profound change in those who try really hard. Those who make elaborate plans and resolutions in their lives. No, those who behold him shall be, have profound change in, in their attitude towards him. See, dear friend, I love how 1 John 3, 2 says it. It says this, dear friends, we are already God's children. But he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. Beloved, your longing to change is biblical. You don't know precisely what it will be like or look like, but it is biblical. And your discontentment is evidence of your impending trans transformation. You long to be what you were meant to be. But how? How will it happen? Look with me in 1 John 3, 3. It says this, We do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. You see, when Christ appears, we will be like him clearly and beholding him as he, as he is will change us. We will be like him. We all long to change because we are all meant to be something more. These verses from Isaiah help set up the expectation of what it means for us practically. The biblical pattern of transformation is this, suffering, then glory crucifixion, then resurrection. Some of you are scared you will fail, scared you cannot change, but in Christ we have the guarantee of change. This life or the next, you will be changed. And Satan tries to rob this promise of his power by telling you that it shouldn't hurt, that it shouldn't hurt. He tries to rob you of the promise of the power of suffering that precedes, that precedes glory and crucifixion that precedes resurrection. But here's the reality. Christian pain is that pain that comes through obeying Jesus. There's some pain that we should want to endure as followers of Christ. 
There's some pain that you will endure as followers of Christ. Not all pain is bad, but there is pain that, that, that God allows to come into your life to allow you to become more dependent on him and less dependent upon yourself. This is the goal. This is how the gift that God gives change everything. Because this gift will succeed, but it will succeed in ways in which you yourself probably would think it shouldn't succeed. But yet there will be success. And not only does Jesus give us the model and the person of Jesus to fulfill that success, but he gives us a formula to follow. Beloved, one of my favorite passages of scriptures is Philippians chapter 1, 29. It's, it's written by the great evangelist and apologist Paul from a nasty field, dirty prison cell, feces field, rat infested prison cell. And from that place, Paul writes the greatest book of joy called Philippians. And this is what he says in Philippians 129. He says to that congregation, that church of Philippi, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you were engaged in the same struggle that you saw I, I had and now hear that I have. I love this because Paul puts the Christian life into perspective. He says, listen, it, it's just one, it, it, there's one aspect for you to believe, but there's another aspect for you to suffer. And every time that we suffer through our obedience in Christ, it's a suffering that always precedes the resurrection that God wants, the transformation and resurrection that God wants to have in your life. Some suffering, some pain is worth having. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying you should delight in it. But I do want you to understand that God has a purpose in it. And he's not going to leave you in that place of pain and anguish. He will use that pain and anguish to draw you closer to him, to know him in, more, in a more intimate way that you would not have known him unless you went through that very thing you don't want to go through. Submit to the sovereignty of God, even in the midst of your circumstances. What does that look like? Father, it hurts, but I trust. Father, I don't understand, but yet I still will obey. Father, everything around me says you're not good, you're not holy, you're not right, you're not righteous, but God, I fight for the reality that you are. You're a good and holy God. Not because my circumstances say so, because the gift that you have sent me in Jesus says so, that he is good, he is righteous, and he is holy. At this time, we'll celebrate the communion table together as a church family. It's one of my favorite things. We'll continue in worship and celebrating the reality of what Christ has done for our behalf. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. He says, take, eat, remember, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup says, this is the blood of my new covenant. Take and drink, for this is given for you to be rem remember me by. Christians, one of the greatest realities that we have is that we serve a, a God. We serve a God who sent his son that obeyed him even to the point of death. But even death could not hold him because even in his death, there was resurrection. You can trust God through your pain and your sorrow. When you're ready, we're going to ask you to come up and partake of this meal one last time. But in partaking of it, I hope you understand, you're not just partaking in the aspect of believing in God, 
you're also partaking in an aspect of suffering for him and suffering with him and knowing that God will use the sufferings in your life to transform you more and more into the image of his son. Will you pray with me? I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.